Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 7 of the podcast, the topic is the future of diversity in VC. Our guest is Julianne Zimmerman, managing director at Reinventure Capital and lecturer at Tufts University. Julianne, how how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. And you? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a nice morning. So what um, what's on your mind today, uh, Julianne? What's uh, going on? Well, I'm thrilled to be talking with you this morning about what we see coming along the horizon in the venture capital community from our perspective at Reinventure Capital. And um, I'm really looking forward to an interesting conversation. That's fantastic. I wanted to start by just, uh, you know, um, giving a, just a little snapshot of, of, of your background. You have an extremely interesting background. I, I, I love. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well, first of all, you're the managing director at Reinventure, which we'll talk about. Um, but then you're also a, an instructor and you're a, a top rated teacher uh, at Tufts, uh, at Gordon Institute. And then I guess over 25 years, you've been working kind of on this intersection of technology and, and social change, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to. Sure. Um, you have a master's from Maryland and uh, an undergrad from MIT. Actually, two from MIT. Two undergrads from MIT. Yes, which my uh, undergraduate advisor thought was um, absolute foolishness. I, I double majored in aeronautical, astronautical engineering and literature. And he thought that my interest in literature was absolute proof that I did not belong at MIT. <laughs> So. That sounds like a start of your trajectory for being interested in diversity. <laughs> it's it's quite indicative, actually, of, I think, both um, who I am as a person and also the kinds of really interesting conversations I've had with people over the course of my very varied working life so far. You gave me a great clue. Who are you as a person, Julianne? I would have never been able to ask that straight of a question. You fed it to me. <laughs> well, I think that I can answer that question in any number of ways, as, as any of us could. But I think that in the context of this conversation, what might be a helpful way to answer that question is that I'm fundamentally someone who is interested in seeing things from multiple angles. Right. And I very much um, chafe at uh, a dogma of, of any kind. And, and I find that as soon as I hear someone start a sentence with, well, we know that, I immediately become restless and, and impatient. And, <laughs> and I'm waiting to hear the end of the sentence, which I know I'm going to disagree with. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that's a that's a great start of, of where we're heading because you were twice a finalist in the uh, NASA's astronaut uh, selection program. That, that's right. That to me, I mean, for anybody, is a, is an accomplishment. But it's extremely fascinating to me. You know, outer space. What? How, how did that 
fascination start? Was that you know, way before you you went to MIT? You were interested in these things. It was. Uh, I was. I was really determined to find my way to the space program from the time I was maybe twelve or thirteen, and um, in my very uh, naive teenage mind, I thought that the way you became an astronaut was you went to MIT to study aeronautical astronautical engineering. And so it's not the dumbest thoughts <laughs> that I've heard, actually. <laughs> it's not the most outlandish, but it was, let's just say it was an incomplete <laughs> perception. Right. right, right, right. And so well, it almost got you there. Very nearly. Um, yeah. I, I went to MIT when I was 16. And, uh, and I embarked on this amazing, uh, adventure, which really was extraordinary. I, I went to work in the mid 1980s for a tiny little company here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, that was at the time, uh, a, a little upstart in an industry completely dominated by, by giants, right? And this was before we had the language or, or the commonly um, adopted social concepts of, of entrepreneurship and innovation and disruption and all these things. And so um, it was considered a, a very strange choice um, mm. to have gotten a degree in aero-astro engineering from MIT and then to have gone to this tiny, tiny little company that nobody ever heard mm. of. <laughs> And uh, I was employee number seven. And um, what I loved about that company was that it had been created by a couple of researchers who were just completely unwilling to accept the status quo in, in the industry at the time, which was if you as a researcher decided that the next thing you needed to examine in your research was the role of gravity in whatever you were studying. And you applied to NASA for approval to fly your experiment and received that approval. Then basically the next thing you had to do was, was contract one of the big aerospace houses to right. design and build your, your experiment apparatus for you. And at the time the average was eight to 12 years to get that experiment flown in space. And it was about mm. even odds whether you'd get any usable data back, let alone publishable, mm. right? Mm. And so these researchers said, this is just unacceptable. And there has to be, you know, we have to be able to do better than this. And, and so in the 14 years that I was involved with that company, my team and I had an average of three years from incept to return of data. And we always returned data and, um, and we did a bunch of things that people thought were impossible and we set a bunch of precedents and won a bunch of awards and accolades. Um, but really the, the most gratifying thing about it was working with researchers from all over the world to advance just a, an extraordinary array of, of research queries and along the way, of course, I got to work with astronauts and cosmonauts and, and 
representatives of, of not only NASA, but also the Canadian Space Agency and European and Japanese and Soviets and then Russians. And, wow. um, you know, I got to do parabolic flight and, and neutral buoyancy simulations. And I was at Mission Control to say go. And I was at Baikonur Cosmodrome <laughs> to see a launch. And I mean, it was just an extraordinary adventure of a career. And, wow. Um, wow. So, yeah, I got to do more in 14 years than most people get to experience in an entire working lifetime. And and the culmination of that was I also got to be interviewed twice, which was a signal honor. That's wonderful. Julianne, tell me then, fast forward a few years and, and, and start with giving uh, my listeners, I guess, a, a little... Uh, primer in, in basically impact investing, because this is now a field that you've moved into. What is this field? Sure. Well, so first of all, I think it's important to just acknowledge that impact investing as a phrase does not yet have any truly concrete meaning. It's, I, I often refer to it as the linguistic equivalent of Michael Pollan's food-like substances, right? So hmm. if, right. The, if the function of food is to deliver nutritive value into our bodies, um, we eat things as though they are food, which do not perform that function, right? And right. those right. are the food-like substances. And so analogously, if the purpose of language is to transfer understanding from one person to another. We have words and phrases we use as though they are language. They look like language, they sound like language, but they impart no understanding whatsoever. And in fact, they often serve to um, create or sow confusion. Look, I'm starting to see the value of studying aeronautical (laughs) and literature at the same time. You're you're making me rethink my career choices here. Um, well, so, uh, impact investing as a phrase is one of those phrases that unfortunately means something different to almost every person who uses it. And sometimes even different things in different contexts for the same person, right? So from my point of view, the way that I think about impact investing is comprehensively across asset classes, across uh, return expectations across any kind of um, categorization you might apply to any kind of inde- investing endeavor. If you commence that investing endeavor with not just the risk and return and time horizon and and other usual parameters, but also along with those parameters, an expectation or a requirement or, or an assessment, at least, of the positive and negative effects of those investments. That, I will say, is, you know, generally speaking, impact investing, right? You know, it's interesting you say this because I just had a conversation yesterday with a fantastic guy who's going to be on the show soon. And, and he just said, well, you know, we're not a diversity fund or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a gr- and and by the way, I mean you know enough about him, but basically, I think it's an interesting statement uh, 
uh, right? Because people want to clarify whether they are or are not a diversity fund, an impact fund. But what you're saying goes very counter to that kind of attitude. And, and why is it that, I guess the first years of this term and the early funds, you kind of had to exaggerate, exaggerate the, the point, right? To say we truly are, and you know, yes, we put this left fund and center. What you seem to be saying is a little bit different. You seem to be saying that it's more of a natural, it's, it's kind of one of the criteria, but it doesn't necessarily, well, for one, make you an inferior fund. It's not like, you know, you're now, Segging, you know, segueing away from the true, uh, you know, high returns. You're just, you know, putting a limitation on yourself. You're saying it's just one of the base criteria going into an evaluation. It's not like you're so set apart from the market that you can't even be treated as a market actor. And yeah. I think that's maybe is that is, is that maybe happening as an evolution of the term and the funds that are kind of choosing to see themselves that way, or or is it just that? Um, there never really was that massive distinction between, you know, I'm an impact fund and I'm not an impact fund. Well, so I think that, that there are significant distinctions. And for example, if you read or listen to the um, comments Erica Karp has made at Cornerstone Capital, you know, she makes a, a, an extremely um, not only impassioned, but also evidence-based case that if you are not taking impact considerations into account, you're probably failing your fiduciary obligations because oh, that's an interesting material. perspective. <laughs> no, that's a great, I mean, that's a very kind of a, that's a very high pitched uh, defense, I guess, of, of the concept in and of itself. You're saying it's actually the most natural thing and it, it shouldn't Absolutely. be any other way. But, but that said, I mean, the uh, part of the reason that there is this, I would say, um, uh, confusion or, or lack of clarity around this phrase impact investing is that, again, you're, if you look across asset classes and you look across geographies and you look across return expectations, right, uh, you will, of course, find that there are wholly concessionary impact investments, which make perfect sense if you are investing to create capacity, for example. Right. Right. Um, just as you might have bond investments that have quite low returns, but you're making them for the purpose of that fixed income instrument, right? Exactly. And at, conversely, at the very opposite end of the spectrum, you have high impact, high return, totally non-concessionary investments, which again, right. makes sense given the nature of those investments. And you have the full spectrum in between. Got it. And so I think that what very often happens, and I've seen this happen far too often, is you have practitioners of different kinds of impact investing strategies at different loci on that spectrum, arguing punch and Judy style about, you know, this is impact and yours is not. No, 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 you are wrong. <laughs> Mine is impact and yours is not. And, and I think that, um, unfortunately, that contributes to the confusion more than advancing the practice. So there's two things that I wanted to make sure we got to. I mean, one is sort of diversity in VC mm -hmm. overall, because there's a, there is a legitimate discussion. Well, there was a legitimate discussion about diversity in, in among VCs and, you know, the old boy, the old white men network, really, yeah. uh, which I think has now become 
really dire, right? To, to, to discuss and address, but also there's diversity in founders. So there's kind of two issues, uh, that I think we, we should, we should cover. What, if we just pick up on the founders first, what mm. characterizes sort of these underrepresented founders that you, uh, want to invest in? What, what kinds of founders specifically? What gr- types of groups are, you know, are underinvested right now in the VC space? Sure. So it, if you just look at the sector writ large, about 90%, give or take, of venture capital goes to predominantly straight white men from a dozen universities. And uh, with leading companies that are that are located in about a half dozen metropolitan areas and and right. and that's up from a few years ago when it was four metropolitan areas by the way yeah. <laughs> um and, and, and so by the way, and we're talking research. about the u.s incidentally so R- right we we see similar patterns in the uk and elsewhere but but specifically those numbers are about the u.s so some of it i mean this is interesting there's there's actually a phd from mit on zip codes and innovation right and one of them shows uh basically the, the best zip code or one of the best zip codes is the zip code around MIT, right? The, the Kendall Square zip code. Right. So let's just take that as an example, right? Yeah. That has never really been viewed, I think, by many as a diversity point because it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, it's outside MIT campus. What's non-diverse about that? But of course, these hotspots, these innovation hotspots, they now, perhaps, I mean, I'm a... Uh, I'm not a diversity expert, but I'm trying to make this point and you, you tell me if this makes any sense. But, you know, the innovation community was talking about these n- innovation hotspots in terms of, well, of course, there are innovation hotspots. That's where the concentration of either, you know, wealth, capital, innovation, what have you. It's the infrastructure of innovation that we need. And, you know, it's just proven that companies from those zip codes obviously must have some sort of direct access to things that go into successful startups and, you know, and other things. But is there now a lens that we need to apply to that phenomenon and say there's actually an intrinsic pattern here that we need to, to address? Well, so a couple of things. First of all, I don't think you have to be a diversity expert to just sort of look at the landscape and ask some thoughtful questions about it. And, and, and that's what I encourage people to do, right? So second, you know, if we look at if we look at the the Kendall Square East Cambridge neighborhood around MIT, um, you know one of the things one of the explanations we've heard for many years is that Boston and Cambridge have such an intense uh, profusion of innovative startups because of the intellectual capital we have, and that's that's part of the story, right? Because MIT predated the the innovation entrepreneurship boom by about a hundred years and Harvard by right. a multiple of that. Right. And True. so we, we had the intellectual capital for a long time before we had this profusion. And and we had capital in Boston. Boston was a merchant town, right? We had capital in Boston for a long time. Um, it was really the combination of not only those factors, but also the efforts of, of people who said, we want to actively 
catalyze the growth of young technology-based companies here and, and intentionally combined those elements plus expertise and, and very active intentional networking and, and some other things in order to really spark that um, intensely active ecosystem that we now have. And then, of course, as people saw that happening, they wanted to be part of it and came and joined. Like but my point is, you know, one zip time. code, Kendall Square, versus the zip code just across it or, or even just outside it. I mean, I think this is what the problem here, I guess it's, you know, it's hyper proximity that we're talking about. So it's not like you have to go to inner Michigan, I mean, you know, or, or somewhere really far off to get this discrepancy. You You don't have to go further than you know, a little bit off the tee and, and, you know, and to the left and to the right, you know, uh, then you get to these communities that have zero access to the exactly. same type of capital. Exactly. And so, uh, the, the hyper focus, or as we often refer to it, the hyper concentration of those resources really is, uh, it, it has both, um, sparking value but sure. it also um, becomes, you might think about it as being quite blinding or mesmerizing, so it, it distracts from everything else. And I also think it's really important to point out that even within that, uh, even within that neighborhood immediately surrounding MIT, not everybody in that neighborhood gets the same amount of attention or or capital or other resources, right? So I've had numerous conversations, more than I would like to count, uh, with, with people who are postdocs or, or multiple degree holders from MIT with you know, significant uh, patents in their own names, with you know significant customer demand already demonstrated um who nevertheless cannot seem to catch the attention of of the venture community can you boil this down for us today in 2020 what exactly constitutes characteristics that for some reason don't play as well as others so, so what are the these what are these uh, yeah. categories? I mean, and or do you refuse to put it into categories? Because you you you'd sort of said these are this is an example. You didn't say gender. You didn't say ethnic background. You didn't say origin. You didn't say anything. You know, socioeconomic. What what are those things that shine through when you think about all of those conversations that you're having? Because I'm I'm careful. I don't want to try to pigeonhole you into sort of because no. I know characterizing this into one type of, of uh, underrepresentation might also be another sort of form of domination. So I, I don't know exactly how you um, how you see that. Yeah, I appreciate that. So so really, we just say, look, if if ninety percent of all of the capital and all the resources go, is going to one demographic, in essence, right. Right. and and that's not to disparage white men. It's certainly not to disparage people from those 12 universities. MIT is near near the top of the list, by the way, and I'm 
uh, very active in the MIT community. So it's not to disparage those institutions and it's not to disparage Boston and Cambridge, you know, uh, loci of that activity. Um, but it is to say that if we have that hyper concentration in one very narrow, you know, multiple filter uh, right. set, then that, again, just in a very commonsensical way, looking at the landscape, that almost by definition constitutes a failure of the market to appropriately price risk and opportunity, market dislocation. And then we have the evidence, by the way, from lots of studies that have been done by Morgan Stanley and Boston Consulting Group and the Brookings Institution and numerous others, uh, McKinsey among them, uh, who have found that in fact, when you have heterogeneous teams, and particularly when you look at the, the innovations coming out of other communities, other identities of founders, you find that they are at least as effective at building uh, innovative, competitive companies that are able to perform in terms of risk and return in the marketplace. So to your question about how do we think about those identities, I think about it as just saying, well, who is, who's being missed? Who is being missed here? Right. And yeah. how do we pay attention to what the market is missing now with reinventure specifically, we focus on particularly, we focus on black indigenous and other people of color. Sure. And we focus on women of all identities. And so um, any female identifying founders across the gender spectrum. And, and, and we do that not because that's a comprehensive catch of all the people being missed by, by the hyper concentration of the venture sector, but because that builds on, uh, first of all, a, a an effective strategy that my senior partner at Duggar pioneered in a former fund, but also because that's where the strengths of our networks lie. And so, so let me, let me just dig a little deeper yeah. here because what I'm trying to understand, because some people are saying, well, yes. Okay. So it's a uh, people of color or a uh, women issue. Those are two groups. And it's pretty easy to kind of list those as, as clearly underrepresented. But then there's this debate about cognitive diversity. Sure. And that can be framed in different ways. I mean, one, it's sometimes, I guess, a knee-jerk response from white guys who say, well, you know, it's much more important to have smart perspectives wherever they come from. And this is sort of, I guess, the sentiment in, in the investment community would be as a response to this, they would say, well, you know, what are you talking about here? Mm -hmm. Julianne, what's important is we need cognitive diversity. We need the best ideas wherever they come from. And they would argue that happens anyway. But there's another way to frame that cognitive diversity argument that says, well, that's exactly what you're talking about. Right? Mm -hmm. Because, and I think that's what I wanted to get to with this yeah. impact investing idea. Is like one, one thing is to say, well, we should morally have a wide representation. And, you know, I, I come from Norway and they have, you know, mandated a certain percentage of, uh, I think it's now they are up to 50% uh, females on boards. Mm. And, and, you know, I'm sure they could take that to 
well, it would be difficult to do it for, for people of color, I think, yet, you know, in Norway, but they, they might move to that. They might put some sort of percentage there as well. You could do it for other diversity groups. But yeah. this idea of cognitive diversity, do you, does it make sense to you? And is that the rationale? So, <clears throat> excuse me. And it, I will say it's a yes and no answer. And, and kind of like you framed it, Trond. Uh, so first of all, as we've already discussed, I think about things very differently than a lot of the people I went to school with, for sure. <laughs> That's and, right. And and so just having people who come from different um, educational backgrounds, different uh, degree backgrounds, different professional experiences, different lived experiences does contribute to the heterogeneity of of critical thinking and creative thinking, right? And and that contributes to problem solving. However, if you're still focusing on variations within a fairly homogeneous demographic, you're only getting a small portion of that heterogeneity, right? And and the fact of the matter is we know that founders create companies to pursue the opportunities or solve the challenges that they see and, and are drawn to. Right. And so different people are drawn to different problems and different solutions. And, and so lived experience, cultural background, even different differences in, in your language of origin will have an impact on the things that, that you latch onto and, and, commit your energy to addressing, right? And That's, so um, it, it does actually make a difference to reach beyond, you know, again, a zip code, <laughs> to reach beyond a demographic, to reach beyond uh, a, a university, et cetera, to, to engage people with those very different perspectives. I wanted to move to some concrete funds that have done work that you sure. that you respect. Uh, th- there are VC funds now, and then we'll. we'll I, I want to hear about reinventure. There are some funds even here in the Boston area. Uh, one in particular, I'm thinking. I'm just blanking on the name right now, but uh, that targets immigrant founders. Yeah. Right, and yeah. then there, and then there's specific diversity group funds. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some funds that are doing good work, regardless where they originate, that that are putting uh, some of these principles into practice? And and then we can, you know, we'll move into reinventor. I'm very curious to hear what you guys are up to. But are there a couple of others that you have tracked or that you um, find do uh, well, do interesting work? <laughs> uh, we we don't have a, anything like a, a systematic or scientific census of of our peers, but but just informally. We have uh, a list of well over a hundred other funds in the United States with some kind of um, non-dominant founder investment thesis, right? And right. so some of them are focused on uh, gender or or race or ethnicity kind of like reinventure is maybe at different stages or with different strategies and we can talk about the reinventure strategy. Others are focused on, let's say, as you've mentioned, immigrants or veterans, or um, or they may be focused primarily on LGBTQ or non-binary founders, or they may be focused on specifically um, 
capital-starved geographic uh, strategies, right? So focusing right. On, on places where um, they find that, that, that the investment community is, is not going. Um, right. And so there's, there's really quite an array of, of different vectors, let's say, you can you can take to uh, find a significant opportunity that the majority of the venture sector is just missing for one reason or another. Um, so you know we see, for example, um, in uh, in we like Impact America Fund, for example, very much. This is a, a practice that that focuses not only on on underserved founders but that really looks for opportunities outside those hotspot zip codes right right and so they recognize uh as and i forget whose quote this is i'm sorry um but but as someone said you know um genius is evenly distributed but opportunity is not Right, and so that's really at the core of their investment strategy. Um, we see others focused um, on a particular subset of founders, let's say, or uh, on on solving the capital problem. So, for example, we see um, pipeline angels and groups like those working to bring more different angels into the practice of investing right sure i mean that's another fact of the absolute earliest bid that someone makes on your idea that that could mean a, a lot absolutely and they could also bring those founders out of whatever communities they come from right absolutely. They, they could absolutely. escalate that and you know of course arlen hamilton has been um you know she, the, the way that I think of her is, I don't know if you would remember this cartoon, but when I was a kid, uh, there was this cartoon as part of the Rocky and Bullwinkle show about uh, this, this French-Canadian mouse who was the bane of existence of this uh, Canadian Mountie cat. And, and the mouse's name was Savoir-Faire. And so the, uh, every single time that Savoir-Faire would, would uh, escape and defeat the cat, he would uh, say his catchphrase which was savoir faire is everywhere <laughs> I, love I, that. I feel that way about arlen i don't think she sleeps but <laughs> she's everywhere and she's just being amazing um, well tell us now a little bit about reinventure i yeah. want to hear what your strategy is and some of the more exciting founders that you've invested in recently yeah, so specifically, as I mentioned, we focus on black, indigenous, and other people of color. Uh, you may have seen the acronym BIPOC um, and or women founders, and again, women of all identities. And we look specifically at companies that are at or near break-even and poised to grow profitably, which is, again, a very different uh, investment strategy than than most sure. of our venture peers, and and we do that for a couple of reasons. One, because we are an, uh, a high impact, high return strategy fund, and so we know from prior experience with Ed's predecessor fund that 
investing in those companies at that stage not only uh, gives us the ability to assist those founders to create wealth, not only for themselves and, uh, and the investors, but also for their employees and, and their broader pool of stakeholders. Um, so uh, those are companies that, that really do actually make a high impact. But also because we invest at that stage and specifically with that objective, um, investing for a majority success portfolio as opposed to a couple of, you know, runaway hits. Sure. Um, no, that is quite different. We have, right, we, we have a, 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 an analog return profile as opposed to a binary return profile profile. And it turns out that that out that also generates quite good returns for investors. Right. And so um, we look for teams who have, uh, first of all, again, a heterogeneous existing team, but also who are committed to hiring, promoting and compensating equitably, because we know that's how they will continue to remain innovative as they grow. Um, but, but we really look for teams who are in fragmented industries where they are at the forefront of one or more shifts in that industry. And, and that combination, but you're industry agnostic other than we that are industry agnostic, um, that combination of, of profitable business model in a fragmented industry at the forefront of a shift. And we have a lot of shifts going on right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> That triad we see as the sort of um, core constellation of of a company that has the potential to become a real economic engine, hmm. and they have um, they have quite attractive opportunities both to grow organically and to make acquisitions as they grow, as the opportunity presents, and also to be very attractive targets for acquisition themselves. Hmm. Can you single out a couple of uh, founders or companies, or is that again like you, you you want your majority to succeed? So is it hard for you to just pick 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 uh, one or two to talk about? Um, well, <laughs> no, I'm asking that because it's a very easy question for most VCs, and it's the first thing they would want to tell me about is you know he, we have this winner and that winner. Yeah. yeah. But uh, my, my guess is you just told me that you want your majority to succeed. So yeah. So let me so tell you, you about say, one I mean, we haven't invested in, okay. and, and that way I'm 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 not playing favorites. Uh, this okay. is a company we are actively tracking, and and we very much um, hope to invest in when when they reach the appropriate point. So uh, this is a company in Baltimore, not a real darling of the venture community, Baltimore, um, right. And uh, founded by uh, all active duty service veterans, again, not a group typically uh, favored by the venture community. Uh, the founder CEO is African-American man. The founder chief medical officer is an African-American woman. Uh, COO is a, a white woman. They have, um, over the past several years, built first under grant funding from the DOD and NIH, 
uh, a new platform to provide standard of care training and certification for hospital systems, civilian hospital systems across the United States, to be able to appropriately uh, triage, treat, and, and follow up with veterans and their families who can be 25% of a civilian patient population for a hospital. Sure. And the NIH has designated a vulnerable population because they present just like civilians because they are civilians now, right? Uh, they are right. covered by their employer health insurance and they don't, you know, have a, an ID stamped across their foreheads. But, sure. but nevertheless, they have very different health concerns and very different trajectories than their civilian counterparts and for hospitals who don't know who their, their veteran or, or veteran related patients are, not only do they not have any awareness that, that they have those different concerns, but they may not even know in most cases what those concerns are. Interesting. And so, uh, can you give me the name or is that? Oh, absolutely. So the company is called warrior centric health warriors. Yeah. And um, they rolled out uh, their initial offering to just a small number of, of representative hospitals from a couple of systems. And um, within a few months, they, they were honored as the best new product or service by the American Hospital Association because wow. they solve a very real problem for the chief medical officer, right? Patient outcomes. Right. Um, they solve a very real problem for the chief financial officer, namely uh, excessive patient costs, right? Particularly yeah. under uh, uh, under new care laws, right? And um, and they solve a very real problem for the general counsel, right? In terms of reduced uh, legal risk of exposure for you know insufficient or inappropriate medical treatment, right? So basically, the whole C suite absolutely loves this right and yeah. and the reason that that they saw the opportunity going back to rewinding a few minutes in our conversation the reason they saw that opportunity was both because of their lived experience sure right as veterans but also because having come through all of the veteran and civilian experiences they had combining their their various experiences together they saw a way to be able to bring a solution to bear in an, in a very effective way for this large population of of hospital systems across the United States and eventually outside the US as well now um, being who they are I can tell you without um, disclosing any, you know, secrets they they have shared in confidence that that they have not had uh, a warm reception at all from from the venture community. Um, but we love we love this business. Um, it's mm. it's very well uh, it's very well founded in terms of the, the opportunity. It addresses uh, a present and and 
significant need on the part of their customers, hospital systems. It also yeah. solves a real human problem in the form of, of the, the well-being of, of a significant population of Americans. It's profitable. It will be profitable. I mean, it's a profitable business model. It's not yet profitable. Um, and, and it also has the potential to be uh, expanded to, to, to address adjacent problems, right? So it's, it's not, you know, a, a kind of highly customized one-off solution. Um, we like everything about it. Julian, tell me, this is uh, fascinating. It, it gives me some hope that there will be, and you know, no, no, um, criticism to TikTok, but there'll be businesses that are go a little deeper than, than just social media these days. Tell us a little bit what the future holds. If, if you get your way with, with investing, where, what kinds of companies, how do we get more of the kinds of companies that you are just talking about that are addressing deep, real needs? And, and, and do you see this happening? I mean, do, is there any evidence that these hundred funds that you're talking about, are they growing? Is there, is the group growing? Is the community of awareness around these issues? What rate of growth are you seeing for that? And, and what does the future hold for diversity in VC generally and specifically, uh, for the kind of uh, diversity that really goes deep into people's lived experience, you know, beyond these innovation hotspots? Sure. So that was a lot of questions, by the way. <laughs> um, you I have think, one minute. <laughs> I think really what I see as cause for optimism, which is where I think it makes sense to uh, always conclude where I see cause for optimism is um, up until this year, I would say that the growth in investor capital, LP, limited partner capital, going into funds like us, like our you know couple hundred peers, has been really quite slow, painfully incremental. What I have heard in the last three or four weeks is um, several different people, unrelated to one another, unsolicited by me, saying to me, I think I'm starting to understand now there's, there's a whole opportunity set I never saw before. And so I love that you're using the word opportunity set instead of sort of like, like moral prerogative or something, which is probably is also true, but it's just a completely different way of looking at it. Yeah. So that's what gives me optimism. I think there are for sure very powerful moral and economic arguments and, and for sure I, I have my own but, but I think what I find encouraging is that there's also an extremely compelling opportunity argument. And, and I think based on that small sample set of conversations I've had with people just in the very recent past, I think that is starting to percolate. Um, in terms of what we can see, if that actually does uh, bear fruit, I think we will see... Um, for sure, we'll see fun things like TikTok. Um, 
but but I think and there's nothing wrong see- with that, right? Because yeah. it's a channel and a platform for you know hundreds of thousands of expressions underlying those. So I'm not dissing the right, right. platform idea, but but I'm just saying there are other things out there than social media platforms. Yeah, and I I think what we will see is again uh, a, a profusion in the variety and and the applications and the um, sectors in in which we see successful companies growing and innovating right and and that variety is really what makes a healthy ecosystem right i mean yeah. we we know this from agriculture a monoculture is very brittle right <laughs> I love this conversation. It goes from astro to literature <laughs> to monoculture. So now we can open up a whole new set of discussions around agriculture. It's actually, I'm passionate about agriculture. And then we can m- move to the microbiome if you want after that. Precisely. Because, I mean, these things are related. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what we know in, in all of these in all of these different disciplines, in all of these subject areas, in all of these um, scales, right? From the very, very small to the quite large. What we know re- reliably is that heterogeneity is fundamentally more robust. It's more resilient. It's more prolific, right? It's more fruitful. It, it, it is substantially healthier than, uh, than, you know, any kind of, um, Again, monoculture or or um, homogeneity, right? Thanks so much, Julianne. I hope that we can continue this discussion. It strikes me that this is uh, this could go on for a while, but I think uh, may- maybe we'll save that for a next panel on heterogeneity or you know lack of monoculture. Uh, you know, it, it could be a whole separate discussion. Thank you so much for what you've uh, contributed today. Uh, fascinating to hear what you're up to. Thank you. It's been loads of fun. I look forward to continuing the conversation. All right. Great. Thank you. You have just listened to episode seven of the Futurized podcast with host Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of diversity in VC. Our guest was Julianne Zimmerman, managing director at Reinventure Capital and lecturer at Tufts University. My takeaway is that both on diversity in VC limited partners and on investing in underrepresented founders, there is hope for change. Deal flow is attractive. Valuations are good. There is a growing realization that the market has been missing a lot of talent. But more can be done and the result will be a more fair marketplace, better startups and ultimately products that span a wider range of life situations. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.